I invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We turn to our study in this particular epistle. And return to the message that we did not finish last time. We'll take time to read the opening 12 verses once again and just familiarize ourselves with this particular portion where the Apostle Paul instructs us very helpfully in what it is to lead spiritually and take care of those that are under our care as God would appoint us and enable us. Let's read from verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. Amen. Ending our reading there. Let's still our hearts momentarily in prayer. Let's all seek the Lord. Our Father, we come briefly again. We're first thankful for everything that has already been offered in praise and in worship from this congregation this morning. Our hearts have been encouraged and taught and blessed. We thank Thee for the privilege of joining, joining together and singing and rejoicing in the same truths. And we're glad to know that in spite of the fact we may have fallen a thousand times, that you love us still. Help us to grasp that when we need it most. We pray as the word is opened that thy hand would be upon preacher and hearer. We pray for profit. We pray for power. We pray thou wilt encourage us in the word and guide us by thy spirit. Give us all the help we need 
both preacher and hearer, may there, may there be the impact that thou wouldst have to be in hearts as a result of this message. Do what thou wilt in all of our lives. and Magnify Christ, we pray in his precious name. Amen. Last time we were here, beloved, we considered verse 7 on its own, which presents before us this particular spirit that the Apostle Paul had toward the new converts at Thessalonica. It comes after he has presented something of what it is to be a preacher, at least what it was for him to be a preacher as he entered into that city. We noted already in our study the boldness that he had, verses 1 and 2, the truthfulness that he had also in verses 3 and 4, and his integrity in verses 5 and 6. And we said last time, that's two weeks ago now, that the Apostle Paul there in the opening six verses is presenting something of his preaching ministry. He is showing us what it is to bring the Word of God, at least how he brought the Word of God to that particular city. But from verse 7, as we said last time, he begins to show not his preaching ministry so much as his pastoral ministry. The manner of the man, the way he conducted himself around the individuals that were there, particularly those that were saved, those that were new converts. And we considered, as I've said already, verse 7, and saw first his example, that he is gentle among you. That's what he says, we were gentle. Of course, he uses we because he is enveloping not just himself, but the entire missionary party that were with him. So we were gentle among you, that is their example. But also we noted his equivalent, because he compares himself even as a nurse cherisheth her children. And this is like a, a mother taking care of her child, nursing the child, cherishing the child, and he likens himself to that kind of care. Of course, this was essential for the new converts. We expressed all of that already and sought to emphasize how important it is to really take care of the young. That while all of God's people need to be encouraged, need to be instructed, need to be taught, need to be cared for, ultimately the young need particular attention. And I'm not going to go over old ground anymore, dealing with what we considered from verse 7. This morning, however, we continue looking at the gentleness of the Apostle Paul and try to learn from him what he expresses in relation to that in verses 8 and 9. And so this is essentially part 2 of the message that I tried to get through the last time. So we've seen his example, his equivalent. We come thirdly then to consider his effort. And this brings us to verse 8, where we read, So being effectually desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. This characteristic of gentleness that permeated the pastoral ministry of the Apostle Paul continues with this language. Now again, keep in mind the context. The nursing mother receives, in a sense, nothing in return from the child. Nursing mothers will know that. She is motivated by love. She gives herself to the needs of the child because she loves the child. And that is the kind of love that Paul had for the church there, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. We had that kind of love. We exhibited that kind of love. You had tremendous needs. We asked nothing in return. We just returned, the, or we showed rather, the love of Christ toward you in caring for you 
as a mother does an infant. Now, many of you will be aware and have not experienced it, the fact that good parents are perhaps the most common fly-under-the-radar examples of selflessness in the world. I mean, everything else that exhibits selflessness gets praised all the time. Various forms of public service, uh, those who are in the military, philanthropists as well. We, We find out what they've done and we praise them and we give adulation toward them. And yet the most common place for acts of selflessness is in the home. It is right in the daily living amongst those that we are not trying to impress. The person who does acts to impress others publicly, they know that they will have, as the Lord Jesus said concerning the Pharisees and in their religious practice, it was all a public show. Verily, they have their reward. But the Father that sees in secret also rewards those that are engaged in constant selflessness in the place where the world never sees it. Mothers, be encouraged. The Lord sees. Fathers, be encouraged. The selflessness is not in vain. The Lord knows all that you endeavor to do and will and does bless you in those acts of selflessness. The moment, I think I said this last time, the moment the infant cries, the mother essentially has to drop everything. She has no ability to delay. She doesn't have the, the, the time, the, the allowance, the liberty, the tolerance to just ask the infant to, can you just hold on a minute? Can you wait 30 minutes? Can we schedule this for another time? As soon as the infant begins to cry, she is there on demand. And for the most part, the infant isn't really conscious of it. Of course, they get to a certain stage, I think. Naomi's at this stage where they know, they know rightly, we would say, they know rightly they're a year and a half and they can call and cry and they can just turn it on and they, 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 they know that mom will come crying. And of course, dad, he's there saying, look, you're, you're being played here. <laughs> you're being played. I know it. And of course, the, the tenderness of the mother responds anyway. The child doesn't realize often, certainly in the early months, the, the, the demands that it's making of its mother But the mother continually gives herself for the life of the child. That's the point. She is giving herself for the life of the child. And this is the apex of those in the labor of making disciples of Christ. That though at times there may be very little return or reciprocity of appreciation... They're not there for that. They, they are there, they, they feel themselves compelled. And we'll look at this a little more. But the love of Christ compels them, moves them to give themselves over and over and over again for the infants in Christ. Of course, like the mother and the father, they will look for that time when the child will be weaned and will begin to move on to other things, as it were. Not because she loses, out, loses her love for the child, but because she wants to see maturity. The parents want to see the child mature and strengthened and to move in the analogy that Scripture uses from milk to meat. And so it is in the things of the church, in matters relating to believers, that even those that pour out their lives, pour out their hearts for disciples, 
their desire isn't that those individuals that they pour their lives into would become dependent on them. It's the total opposite. You're trying to establish believers that of themselves can walk in the Lord, make decisions that are right, obey God, glorify the Lord, and to use what Scripture talks about, that those things that we have received, that we impart to others, that they may be able to impart them to others also. And I'm always struck by the four generations of discipleship that the Bible reflects there. The Apostle Paul makes plain when he writes to Timothy and to Titus. That four generations, what you've received, Titus. So there's one generation. Then there's Titus. Titus is in part to others that they might be able to teach others also. Four generations involved in discipleship. Every church, indeed every Christian, rightly thinking, should have at least four generations in mind in terms of discipleship. It's not just keeping in mind your children, those under you. First, you remember what you received, how you were discipled, how you were helped, the good influences that God had in your life. And you're taking that on board within yourself. You're imparting that, hopefully with even more light, to others with the desire that they would continue on that discipleship process in the lives of others as well. We're wanting to raise them up into maturity. And this was the business that the Apostle Paul was engaged in. But he was very, very gentle. Very like a nurse cherisheth her children. Now in verse 8, as we continue that sense of gentleness, we note that he had first a deep love for them. He had a deep love for them. Look what it says, being affectionately desirous. The term used here is only found here in the New Testament. And it has a sense of longing lovingly, or we might use the term yearning. He yearned for them. This is how he felt towards the believers in Thessalonica. And that feeling continued even after he left them because that's why he's writing to them. He still cares. They still matter to him. He is yearning. He has this longing for them, this this love for them that longs for their welfare. Being affectionately desirous of you. Now he refers in context of the very time in which he was there. Right there at that time, he had a love that was expressed toward them, a longing toward them. And so that was exhibited, that was on display. But what we said last time was that this gentleness, this kind of longing, this kind of love that expressed in these terms affectionately desires of you, did not mean that he just skirted around sin. Paul, Paul did not skirt around sin at all. He knew there were times where sin had to be addressed directly. And we can be guilty of cowardice when we are not willing to address sin in the lives of others, especially those under our care. He learned this, of course, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to the cross, the Lord Jesus, I find, is remarkably gentle toward the disciples in light of their imminent betrayal of him. The betrayal of Judas, of course, is one thing, but the denial, we might say, of the disciples ought to have, we might imagine, brought from the Lord a sense of rebuke. And yet at the end of John chapter 13, verses 37 and 38, when Peter says, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. 
you're going to deny me, Peter, three times. And everyone's going to forsake me and flee elsewhere the Lord makes that plain. You're all going to run away. And you would think, knowing that, the Lord would then deal with them in such a, in such a way that it would be more harsh and more direct. But that's not the case. In fact, what follows John 13 is John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Perhaps some of the most encouraging chapters in all of the New Testament. The Lord Jesus expressing His love, His care, His desire, His longing for them. How He will help them. That though He goes away, He will send another Comforter that will abide with them forever. He lays before them, again, the charge that they have, the ministry that they will be engaged in. And the world may hate them, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He exalts, He encourages, He, he helps them along. Even in light of the language He just said, you're going to deny me. This is gentle. Little wonder is it then, whenever you come to that portion from John 13 onwards, it begins with that phrase that John kind of pulls back the lid on what you're about to read. He just he kind of pulls back the veil on everything you're about to read from John 13 to the cross, and he says, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And it's that love of Christ that enabled Christ to be gentle when he's saying, you're going to deny me. It's the love of Christ that encouraged them even in light of the denial that's about to take place. And he just gives promise after promise and encouragement after encouragement in light of the denial that they're about to perform. Gentle. And yet, yet, the Lord had told them on several occasions what would follow his death. And their unbelief at that point greatly grieved him. And he didn't ignore it. We read in Mark chapter 16, verse 14, Afterward, Jesus appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and, note the word, upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. The point isn't so much that they didn't believe them, although that, that is it, that's what's said, but the Lord had told them as well. He had shared with them, this is what's going to happen. And they ought to have known and then believed what was communicated to them that indicated that what the Lord said would happen has, has, has happened. And yet, they don't believe. And so he upbraids them. This is the same language, the same word that is used when he addressed Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum in Matthew 11, verse 20, which says, Then began he to upbraid the cities, wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. And you remember the language. Woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and so on. The Lord was not afraid to point out their sin. The question I want us to think about is, how does one address sin while still being gentle? This is where it's really difficult. When we see sin in someone else, especially someone under our care, how is it that we address that sin in the right way? How would the Lord have us to address that sin? And our gentleness will be exhibited, will be able, we will be able to remain gentle 
in dealing with that sin, when we have the same love that Christ had for his people. When the love of Christ dominates your heart, when, it, when you're so filled with the love, and it's expressed here, this is why I'm going over this in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you. Why was Paul longing lovingly for them? Why did he yearn after them? Did they just capture his imagination? Were they just the kind of people that he really struck it off with? He had a love for them. Affectionately desirous of you. I, I longed for you. I loved you. I yearned for you. Because the love of Christ so filled his heart. You will know. You will know that this is vital. I mean, if you, if you analyze the, the times where you have been in the right addressing someone's sin, take it right to the home, um, siblings, <laughs> children, and you have to address a matter of sin, if you really love them, you will not really have to try too hard in being gentle as you present the matter. And they will read it that way. They will see it. They will know by your manner that you, that by the gentleness that comes by the love that's in your heart, that you really care. On the other hand, if there's no love there, you're more likely to be harsh. You're more quick to cut them down. You're, 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 you don't consider all the factors because you're just wanting to point out the error and be harsh about it. That's the total opposite of the spirit of the Apostle Paul. Being affectionately desirous of you. He had a deep love for them. And I don't want us to miss it because the, we then need to turn this around and ask ourselves, is this the kind of love we have for the Lord's people? This is a love that Paul had for the Lord's people. He loved the Lord's people. Now, <laughs> Scripture talks about this. Again, go back to John chapter 13. The Lord says, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one to the other. Love. It's foundational. It's not something we can, can debate about. If it's not present, there's a problem. And Paul's example here, which should convict us all, he's essentially saying to the entirety of that church, I was affectionately desirous of you. I had a love for you. Now, of course, being the instrument that God used to bring them to salvation, it would be easier for him, perhaps, to show that love. But nevertheless, we learn from him. The love, he had a deep love for them, and I think we should take that to heart in terms of our love for God's people, that it's that's something that has to be expressed by us all. But not only did he have a deep love for them, he was willing to suffer loss for them. Read on in verse 8. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, what did that love lead him to do? Not just be gentle, but we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because ye were dear unto us. The word imparted is crucial in this text. It has the idea of sharing. It is used in Luke chapter 3 in the record concerning John the Baptist preaching in verse 11 where he says, He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Let him impart. The one who has two coats should impart to the one that has none. Now, in that there is 
loss. The person who has two coats and gives one away loses a coat. Oh, you follow me, I trust there. And the same word is used here. There's a sense when there's the imparting, imparting to another has a sense of the one doing the imparting losing something. And in the case of the Apostle Paul here, it's not material, at least largely speaking, generally it's not material. We were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Paul's saying, I give myself away. I imparted me to you. I lost some of myself for your needs, for the cause that was present amongst you. Imparting himself. Now if you thought the previous verse was challenging, or the previous part of the verse was challenging, I want you to understand this. Because this is very convicting, and I felt the weight of it, believe me, <laughs> when I was preparing for this. Again, so much of this so uh, drives it home again to a sense of leadership and oversight, that if the preacher doesn't feel the cutting edge of this, then he's not paying attention the Apostle Paul is presenting something here of, again, a pinnacle of service. And he is giving us an example in such a way that we should all feel how short we fall in terms of these matters. We were willing to have imparted unto you our own souls, if you get the sense of it, because you were dear unto us, losing something of himself. This is how Paul worshipped God. He worshipped God. I don't want you to remove the worship aspect from this. I think we may miss that. Paul worshipped God by giving himself away for God's people. He honoured God by imparting himself for the needs of the flock. That he saw that my greatest service to God is not standing merely in a church and singing with a congregation and being involved in all the affairs in terms of a worship service, but my greatest worship of God, that's all good by the way, we ought to do that, God commands us to do that, but his worship, his worship extended out to giving himself away for God's people. I want us to see that a little more, just take a moment, turn with me to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15. I want you to see his service, his missionary endeavors in terms of worship what he was doing indeed you may see it in light of his priesthood the priesthood of all believers paul was a priest unto god through christ as we all are and you can see his worship as he gave himself for the sake of the gospel romans 15 we'll read verse 15 and 16 it says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Now, if you have a margin, it will show you that the offering up, or offering up is sacrificing that the sacrificing of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. The image that Paul draws here is that his missionary effort, his evangelizing the world and going into the nations, him bringing the gospel was 
like an act of priestly worship, bringing Gentiles that were not sanctified by the Holy Ghost, bringing the gospel, and then gospel being received by them, sanctifying them, sanctifying them, and him presenting them up as a sacrifice to God. That's his work. Do you see it? I think it's wonderful. Wonderful imagery of ceremonial worship presented in the New Testament age. The offering up of the Gentiles, the sacrificing of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Now I go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And you'll see something more concerning himself in, in the imagery of, of sacrifice. As he offers up Gentiles, he doesn't get to stand off and just watch. Philippians chapter 2. We'll read from verse 14 for context. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Again, if you have a margin, it may show you that the word offered has the idea of being poured forth. And if I be poured forth upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. If I am part of the sacrifice that you're part of, I rejoice in that. Now what is the imagery that's involved here? Well, go back to the Old Testament, book of Numbers, chapter 28. And Numbers chapter 28, the opening verses deal with the, the burnt offering. The burnt offering was performed every single day, morning and evening. And I want you to see the imagery that Paul is drawing from here. And I want you to note that what he wants us to understand is his presenting of the Gentiles is like an offering, like the burnt offering. And he himself is being poured forth upon that offering. Now let's read the opening verses of Numbers 28 from verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say unto them, My offering and my bread for my sacrifices made by fire for a sweet savour unto me shall ye observe to offer unto me in their due season. And thou shalt say unto them, This is the offering made by fire which ye shall offer unto the Lord. Two lambs of the first year without spot day by day for a continual burnt offering. The one lamb shalt thou offer in the morning and the other lamb Shalt thou, shalt thou offer at even, morning and evening sacrifice, every single day. And a tenth part of an ephah of flour for a meat offering mingled with the fourth part of an hin of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering which was ordained in Mount Sinai for a sweet savour, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. Note verse 7. And the drink offering thereof shall be the fourth part of an hin for the one lamb. In the holy place shalt thou cause the strong wine to be poured unto the Lord for a drink offering. Verse 8 elaborates a little more on the sacrifice. But do you see the imagery? Paul takes from this, this, this occurrence that happened twice every single day in ceremonial Levitical worship. He takes that and he says, this is what's going on. That as I labor, as missionary to the Gentiles, I offer them up, converted in Christ as an offering to God. 
They are sanctified by the Spirit. They are made acceptable before Him. And I offer them. That's what He says in Romans 15. And then in Philippians chapter 2, He says, I'm like the drink offering that's poured out upon them. And that drink offering with the heat, what would happen to that wine? It would evaporate almost instantly, disappear. Paul is essentially saying, as I offer my life, as I impart myself for you, I'm being lost in that. My life is vaporizing. It is being burnt up with the sacrifice. I am giving my life for you. It's an amazing imagery. Paul sees himself in his worship for God and worship toward God. This calling to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring the gospel to the nations. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, that is to, to, to give away, to share, not the gospel of God only, not just to come in and say, Christ is the way of salvation. Through Jesus Christ, you can have received life. It wasn't just that. But also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. I imparted, we imparted our own souls because you're dear unto us. Beloved, this, this, this is Christianity here. I know it ought to convict you as it does me. We fall so far short of this. We want to make it as easy as possible. We want to just receive the knowledge that our sins are forgiven and rest there. And we should rest there. We should rest there. We should, we should, we should allow the matter concerning whether or not we're right before God to be laid to rest because Christ has done the work. But the question then comes back, well, what, so what then? What's for the rest of my life? Why not just cause me to go up into glory right now? Why am I here, Lord? And Paul presents it here in very vivid language. While we're here, the imparting of our souls, the giving away of our lives, For the needs of other believers. Especially new converts. Are you convicted? I am. I wonder if even the morning and evening sacrifice is somewhat in his mind when he spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31 and he said, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. Constantly, the continual offering. Night and day, morning and evening was showing that need for the continual offering until Christ would come and do that full and finished work. But he says, he gives us this sense of himself being given every day, night and day with tears. I'm, just, I'm imparting in my life. I ceased not to warn every one night and day, imparting my life. If you can use the language of chapter 2 as he writes to the Thessalonians, I'm imparting myself night and day because you were dear unto us. When he wrote to those in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15, he puts it this way, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. 
I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. (sighs) Serving the church. Serving the church. We are not islands unto ourselves, beloved. And there's not one of us that can replicate the work of the Apostle Paul in the fullness of it. But we take our cue from him and we ask ourselves the question, in what way am I serving the body and imparting and giving a piece of myself away? You have your little weeks all planned out. Every evening you have it all nicely planned. Every evening. This is what you do on a Monday evening and on a Tuesday evening. Just taking even one of those evenings even once a month and saying let's have whoever it might be over for dinner. That's imparting a little bit of yourself. I mean, it's not to the degree that we see here, but it's in the same vein. It's it's putting yourself out a little. It's thinking ahead, it's it's preparing the meal, it's everything that's involved, and and, and just cut. It's just a tiny little step of serving the body. Maybe you know someone's going through a particular hardship, a difficulty. You've caught wind that they're facing difficult times. Maybe they particularly are on your heart. This is a way you can show real... You don't even have to talk about the matter. You don't even have to bring it up. You just show that they're being cared for, that someone's thinking about them at a time when they're struggling. Imparting our own souls because you were dear unto us. Beloved, does the church matter to you? Does it? Does the bride for whom Christ offered himself matter to you? It must. Some people, of course, will be more prone to isolate themselves and they need even more work. Oh, that the church would reflect such love. Oh, that pastors would be consistent in this. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. You matter. One Christian saying to the other Christian, you matter. Have we the love of Christ? The other point that I wanted to bring out last time that ties up this theme of gentleness is found in verse 9 where we have Paul's employment, his employment. He says in verse 9, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. I just want to point something out. 
Note how often he calls them to remember. Go, do that study for yourself. Constantly getting them to go back and to remember. Your memory is a gift from God. Now some people, their memories are like a chain around them. The only things they remember are the bad, the negative. Things in the past constantly enslave them and bind them and cripple them. But their memory is to be used for good, beloved. It's to be used for good. Paul is saying, look, remember, remember what really happened when we were there. Remember what happened. Keep it in mind. It was good. Remember what was imparted to you. Remember what was shared with you. Remember what the Lord did there. The whole context. Keep remembering. And you go to Deuteronomy, you see this word comes up over and over again. God's people are called to remember and remember what is, what is good and what is right and what is true. That's just an aside. Ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. As part of his labor with them, Paul avoided being a financial burden to them by taking up employment that would provide for the material needs that he and the rest of the missionary company would require. No doubt it was tent making, as we know from reading the book of Acts. Now, if it is normal in the New Testament church to function in such a way where the man that labors in the word and doctrine is to hold down a job while he does so, then there's nothing extraordinary about this. There's nothing unusual. You remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable to any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. There's nothing unusual really about that because that's what should be done. Paul's not really going beyond the call of duty here. But what is extraordinary about verse 9 is twofold. First, because he calls us to remember in their remembrance in light of the accusation that has been made against him in verse 5, where he's accused of a cloak of covetousness. You've been hearing these things as if there was a covetous spirit and attitude and motive behind our visitation of you. Remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. So it's remarkable because of that. First, he's accused of a covetousness when there's no grounds for it whatsoever. And second, he taught that preachers ought to receive material compensation for the work. Very plainly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Again, again, it's a sacrificial scene. It's a ceremonial scene. He says, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? You will know that not in all the sacrifices, but many of the sacrifices, a portion of that was to go to the priests. In fact, they had no inheritance in the land. They were completely dependent upon the people coming and bringing their sacrifices and all the offerings and their part in all of that to sustain their lives. And Paul draws from that. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. 
that this is what the Lord has ordained. So he has made it abundantly plain that those that preach the gospel should live of it. Those that receive the benefit of their labors should in kind maintain them in material matters. Matthew Paul puts it this way, God's will is the same under the New Testament that it was under the Old. It is not as to the people a matter of liberty, so as men may choose whether they will maintain their ministers or not. There is an ordinance of God in the case. It is the will of God that those who are taken off from worldly employments and spend their time in the study and preaching of the gospel should have a livelihood from their labor. End quote. So we ask the question, why did Paul not take what was his right when he was in Thessalonica? Why not? And we don't know the exact reason. We're not told. We do know he did the same things with those in Corinth. He did the very same thing. In fact, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8, something very interesting about his time in Corinth. He says there in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. <laughs> I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. I took from other churches to help me so I could serve you for the year and a half he was there. I think we may safely assume that Paul chose not to burden the people of God in Thessalonica and in Corinth that when he would postpone this aspect of Christian practice, it was for the sake of the gospel. Matthew Henry puts it like this, he renounced his right rather than by claiming it, he would hinder his success. There was something he determined that this would not be helpful and he was willing to relent on that matter for the sake of the gospel. But it strengthened his argument all the more against those that were accusing him providentially and maybe this was something he determined maybe it was something he heard when he walked into Thessalonica and he began to preach and then he would begin to hear the very accusations that are right here in this chapter that right there as he began to win souls over to Christ and get Jews in the synagogue to see that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed their long-awaited Messiah that the opposing voices would come and say ah he's only trying to there's only a, a spirit of covetousness in him I've heard about him other places. He takes money from churches. And there are these accusations that came. And so Paul, perhaps even from the outset, hearing accusations to prevent him from making clear the gospel, says, I'm not even going to go down that road. I'll prove to you the real motive why I'm here. What a man. What a heart. This all comes from a spirit of gentleness, doesn't it? He imparts himself because rather than have them suffer, he would have himself suffer. Paul looks at new believers and says, if there's something I can do to help them along, something I can do to just guide them into the right way, I'll do it. I will not keep back. I will impart not just the gospel, but my very soul. And then again, instead of requesting from them monies that would be due to the one that brings the word, he gently, no, no, I'll abstain from that, refrain from that practice on this occasion, 
at least for a time. As we close, I want you to note, back up through what we've already looked at, <clears throat> that on three occasions there is the term used, the gospel of God. In verse 2, verse 8, and verse 9, as Paul presents the preaching and the pastoral ministry, the gospel of God is at the heart, is all about the gospel. Verse 2, the gospel is at the heart of evangelizing the lost. But even after that we have suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. That's evangelistic effort. The gospel of God presented in the evangelistic sense. There's contention. There's almost a riot there in terms of should we listen to this man? Should we listen to the Jewish rabbis? Who should we listen to here? Who, the leaders in the synagogue or, or, to, or to this man, Paul? The gospel of God and evangelism. But the gospel of God is not only at the heart of evangelizing the lost, but it's also at the heart of pastoring believers. Verse 8. For being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. The gospel of God was imparted to them. They imparted to the believers, giving the gospel, sharing the gospel, explaining the gospel, not just in terms of what it is to be justified freely by His grace, but going through the Scripture and teaching them and the doctrines and leading them from milk to meat as the Lord would enable And the gospel is also at the heart of instructing believers, not just evangelizing the lost, pastoring believers, but also instructing them. Verse 9, he instructs them, does he not? For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. He instructs them in this, that at times you don't even take what is your right to take. You sacrifice what you have a right to in order to further the gospel. Still sacrifice. You have a right to it, but I'm not always going to claim that right that the gospel may prevail and go forward. For the sake of the gospel then, beloved, we must be gentle to believers. Particularly, that's the context. We need to be gentle. We need to have a heart for people, a heart for God's people. When God's people are harsh, it is not the Spirit of Christ. Ever. What does John say about our treatment of Christians? 1 John 3.16 Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. I see the love of God, because the Son of God laid down His life. He imparted his own soul. That's, that's the sense of a, Isaiah 53 verse 12. He poured out his soul unto death. He poured out his soul unto death. I see there the love of God as Christ imparts, pours out his soul for my sin. And so John concludes... And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to. Not just the apostles. 
not just the leaders in the church. All the church laying down their lives for the brethren. Sacrificing for the brethren. Imparting their own souls for the brethren. Beloved, we are not functioning in a mature fashion if this is not being exercised or desired by us. We are all going to fall short. We have the perfect example in Jesus Christ. But let's follow the pattern. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Imparting even my own soul. Giving myself away. Oh, it might mean late nights. It might mean having to get up after a night of, of sitting and talking with someone. And normally I'm in bed by 10.30, but I've been sitting at 12.30, 1 o'clock, trying to help this person. It might mean sacrifice in material matters. It might mean sacrifice in a whole host of ways. But I impart myself. I give myself away. Because Christ poured out His soul for me. May the Lord give us grace. May He enable us. Let's bow together in prayer. As our eyes are closed before the Lord. Our pastor has been convicted this very day, or at least in, certainly in preparation for today. I preach a text like this, and you have a right to have an expectation. An expectation that I would follow the example of Paul. Would you pray for me? Would you pray the Lord would help? There's not one of us that does not battle with selfishness, with our time, our energy, the things we have and possess. Let us pray for one, one another that the Lord will give us the grace we need. Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word that it doesn't leave us where we are, but it lifts our eyes to behold our Lord Jesus And to learn again and again what it means. To put it in the words of C.T. Studd, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. God give us the help we need. May this spirit develop and be furthered in all of our lives. Hereby shall 
they know that we are thine when we have love one to another. Help us then, not just now, but in coming days, give us tenderness and gentleness toward all thy people. Be with us then in our fellowship before we leave this place. Bless our afternoon and may we return this evening in the expectation that thou wilt bless us in our gathering again. Gather others in and draw very near this day. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.